Uh, we are thinking about splendor throughout this year. And uh, last week we talked about Psalm 107. This sermon kind of, this, this time, this morning needs a little bit of explanation. It's going to be a little bit different today. Um, because I won't actually be talking mostly about what's in your Bible. I'll actually be talking mostly about what happens after your Old Testament and before your New Testament. So this morning, um, we're looking at something a little bit different, but it is in the same vein. Last week, we talked about Psalm 106, and 106, Psalm 106 told us that we need to praise God. This is our proper response to the grace of God, is to give our praise back to God. And then Psalm 106 like, laid out what that praise looks like by detailing throughout that song all of the different things that God had done for his people. And so the, the medium, the song itself, became the agency of praise, but the action of the song was declaring what God had done. We did that last week thinking about the Old Testament. Next week we're going to do the same thing thinking about Jesus. <coughs> but that leaves us in kind of a middle ground, middle space. And your Bible has middle space in it too. It happens right here, the last page of your Old Testament and then on into your New Testament. And this middle space could create kind of confusion for us because we might think, because there's nothing in between it, we might think either there is no gap in time between the last pages of your Old Testament and the first pages of Jesus showing up on the scene in the New Testament. Or you might think that the period that existed between the Old Testament ending and Jesus showing up on the scene was irrelevant to the New Testament. My contention this morning is that it is highly relevant, and that I want to talk to you a little bit about it because it will help you understand Jesus and his times. And let me begin by just saying it something, something like this. Where did Doug go? I was planning to pick on Doug. Is he, where did he go? There he is, because Doug's my good friend. He was the first person to shake hands with me this morning, so you get picked on. How old are you, Doug? How, how old are you? Okay. That's a good answer. That's a good answer. Let's say you're 50. Let's say you're 70. And over the past 50 years, no, I mean, we'll start, we'll, we'll stop there. <laughs> over the past 50 years, Doug, have, do you feel like much has changed in the world? Yeah. Do you feel like people talk differently? act differently? Do you feel like politics are different, technology is different, clothes are different? I sometimes, I'm sort of hitting this, this, this Doug, you understand this, I, I'm hitting this sort of like age now where I'm looking at younger people and thinking, what in the world is wrong with them? <laughs> hey, Doug, did you ever think that about my generation? <laughs> hey, Doug, do you still think that about my generation? I love Doug and Becky. I love you guys. So, like, that is just my point to say, hey, listen, over 50 years, we all in this room recognize that there is massive shifts that have happened. And if we are liberal in our dating, and we want to say the Old Testament dated to the latest period and finished possible, we would say maybe 200 years before, be, between the closing of the Old Testament and the beginning of the New Testament. 200 years how much do you think shifted and shaped the world that Jesus walked into you? 
You might miss a few things if you don't know anything at all. And so our, our, our hope today, this morning, is to do something a little bit more History Channel style, where we'll talk a little bit about what, has ha- what happened in those intermediate years, those 200 years. Some of it appears in your Bible, but most of it, most of it doesn't. And so that's, that's kind of what's going on this morning, just to kind of give you a heads up and, and help you understand why what we're going to talk about matters. Now, one of the things that appears in your, your Bibles towards the tail, and especially in terms of what we watched last week, where we found out that the Jewish ordering of the Scriptures ends differently than our ordering of the Scriptures. The Jewish Scriptures actually end with the latest book written, and that last book written was Daniel. And Daniel has a lot to say about the rise of the Greek Empire. And this is going to figure significantly, almost so much that you will not understand why everyone didn't get Jesus if you don't get what I'm about to tell you for the next 20 minutes or so this morning, okay? So cast your mind back to the rise of the Greek Empire or fifth grade history or whatever it is that you've got rolling around in that noggin. And when I say the word Alexander the Great, (laughs) this is a bizarre Sunday, I grant you. That, however, takes the cake. Alexander the Great, he had, as all despots and tyrants before him, the vision of conquering, ruling, controlling, and making the world as he wanted it to be. You read your Bible, you read history, you read any book at all that looks at the, at the past, and you'll find this in fiction and nonfiction alike. However, Alexander the Great did something no one else had ever done before. He not only exported terror and death and conquered lands, but he exported culture too. This had never been done before quite the same way. So when Alexander the Great showed up to take over your city or your country or whatever, he not only killed whoever he wanted to kill and took whatever he wanted to take, he left in his wake gymnasiums in which they educated people, public education. You could go to a gymnasium and you could learn there. But guess what language you learned it in? Oh, you guys are so smart. My goodness. No, somebody, no wonder you're cheering for Alexander. You're, you already know all this stuff. Yeah, they, they learned it in Greek. And not only did they get their education from these gymnasiums, but these became the places where you did sports. Guess what sports they played? Greek sports. I, I didn't mean actual guessing, but that's very good. They created new temples. They would build these new temples all over Turkey. In fact, they say that you can find more temples in Turkey to Greek gods than you can in Greece itself. It's a little more landmass, so that's some of the reasons why. But nevertheless, their religion was far more inclusive than anything that happened before. They would come and take over your land, and they would plant the temples of their gods. But if you said, but hey, we worship whatever, blah, blah. (laughs) I couldn't think of anything funny to say. Somebody say a funny god name. Trisha. We worship Trisha. And... You would say, we got a temple to Trisha right over here. Wow, that got weird fast. And uh, they would say, the Greeks would say, no problem, just bring her on in. Like, they just bring new gods into their pantheon. So you never had to argue about religion because your gods are my gods too. We're all hanging out in Olympus. It's fine. Don't worry about it. They planted bathhouses, which were needed in the ancient world, much as they are today. Word of warning. It was a luxury. You were able to sit there and, and sit in the steam. You've seen some of this, the Roman bathhouses. The Romans just stole everything from the Greeks. 
<laughs> Tremendous stealers. <laughs> they started the theater. They built these amphitheaters. You know all about the tradition of the Greek. Theater. So imagine this. Alexander the Great shows up to Portage. He takes what he wants. He kills the rulers, installs his, his own government, levels everything. But in the wake, he's a generous and beneficent tyrant who leaves Temples and bathhouses and places of education and sport and exercise. So you've got your YMCA, you've got your celebration cinema, you've got your malls, you've got everything you need now, and all of it is made in the image of the Greeks. So, you can imagine Alexander the Great starting here in Greece and marching, as it were, all the way across, all the way to India where he finally dies of a mysterious illness, here is right, our Bible, most of everything happening right here. All of this is his. And every step along the way, he's planting all of this stuff. So that when Paul writes a letter to Jews, he writes it in Greek. Right? It becomes the lingua franca. It's kind of like English, the language that everyone sort of has in their back pocket. You can always pull out English, throw it on the table, and hope that somebody might know that. The same thing was true in this ancient world, only it was of the Greeks. So, I lost there for a second. There we go. Okay. So, after Alexander the Great dies, his kingdom is broken into four Four different parts that are ruled by his four top generals. These, four, these two that matter the most are right here. This is a big swath, but nobody gives a, cared much about this stuff over here. It's all right here, right? So all of this, the Seleucids and the Ptolemies, these are these two sections. Now, now, you might not think Alexander the Great matters a whole lot to Israel unless you lived in Israel. And let's zoom in a little bit. And you recognize that this is Seleucid territory and this is Ptolemy territory. Anyone see a problem if you lived in Jerusalem? Bound to come some trouble up in your life, right? That looks like problem. Exactly that. Israel and really this whole area found itself at the apex, at the crux, at the battle line, the no man's land, whatever you want to call it, between these two warring generals who had been given a fair amount of land anyway, but apparently not enough, right? Isn't it funny? No matter how much you have, never quite enough. And so they are here, caught in the middle of this war between these two powers, these two struggles. And there comes, it comes a point where eventually, towards the end of this, at about 168, there is one that rises named Antiochus Epiphanes IV. Has anybody heard this name? Some of you who have read a little bit. Some of you? Good, good. Yeah, a few people. Antiochus Epiphanes IV. He's a very important figure. In fact, <coughs> he teaches us how great it is to be an emperor. Because if you were the emperor, you get to name yourself. And if you knew Greek, you'd know Antiochus Epiphanes is a rad name. It means God manifest. You know, I, I do the same. That's, you know, I wouldn't do that. So he is the emperor. He calls himself God manifest. And in 168, so he's not a very good emperor. He's very ruthless. In 168, a rumor spreads that he is killed in battle because, again, we're dealing with this stuff right here, right? 
So the, the rumor spreads that he's killed in battle. Well, he had installed his own priest over the temple. So there's a riot in Jerusalem. And all these Israelites rise up because they're, the, the, the emperor's dead. Now we can take our land back. So they dispose of the high priest that Antiochus Epiphanes IV installed. But Antiochus wasn't dead. He just lost the battle. And I don't know if you know anything about like people who lose battles, especially if they're emperors, who name themselves God Manifest. But when they lose, they get mad. And when he made it back to Jerusalem and found out there was a bit of a revolt, he didn't take it kindly. And we have recorded in one of our ancient texts a description of what happened. That is found here in Second Maccabees. Now this is a, a title that probably doesn't make a whole lot, it doesn't ring a bell to you. It will by the time we're done. But let me just say that this book right here is a very important book. It's not scripture, but it's a very important book. It was so well revered that when the Hebrews translated their Bibles out of Hebrew and into Greek around the same time, hopefully you can see now why, they translated it into Greek. Before the book of Psalms, they added four new books. Those four new books were 1st, 2nd, 3rd, and 4th Maccabees. All right? So this is a very important book. And this book here describes what happened when Antiochus showed up. This is the story that the Jews were telling themselves and each other. This is the stories that they read in, in Sunday school too. Not just about Moses, but also about the Maccabees. And here we have this. So he, this is Antiochus, he's raging like a wild animal. He, Antiochus, again, set out from Egypt, took Jerusalem by storm, ordered his soldiers to cut down without mercy those who they met, to slay those who took refuge in the houses. There was a massacre of young and old, killing of women and children, a slaughter of virgins and infants. When you see this, if you ever happen to read, where did it go? There it is. If you ever happen to read old texts, that usually just means teenager, right? Somebody who has not been married yet, that's all it's saying. Teenagers and infants, in the space of three days, 8,000 were lost, 40,000 meeting a violent death, and the same number being sold into slavery. So 80,000 people. And a part of this, too, as these texts detail down here, these are the biblical texts that describe it. Antiochus Epiphanes not only does this, but he goes into the temple, which, of course, you might understand if you if you read your Old Testament, the, the non-Jew never went into the temple, let alone the holy places. And he not only goes into the holy places, but he brings a pig with him and sacrifices the pig on the altar. The one one of the things that God's it's not just to say you weren't supposed to eat it, but he is desecrating the temple, spitting on the people and upon their God. And this is. This is what is in their memory around 168. Well, along or around, I should say, this same time, there happens to be a Jewish father, an elder, who is very well respected in his community. But he and his family flee from Jerusalem to an area called Modin. And in Modin, after Antiochus has raged and killed, they send out from Jerusalem envoys, emissaries. And those emissaries go town to town and demand that the Jews make sacrifices to the emperor. Or we kill you, obviously, right? You don't get to say no exactly to this situation. So they are in Modin, and the envoy arrives, and recognizing Mattathias... The Hasmonean, thus we'll talk about the Hasmonean dynasty to get there, but Mattathias Hasmonean, you can see that Europe just can't help but make either people look like savages or Europeans. <laughs> These are old woodcuts. It was really funny. Anyway, that's another rant. I got lost in it. Hold on. 
Hold on, going back. Mattathias. Mattathias. So they recognize Mattathias, and they say to Mattathias, you make the sacrifice to the emperor. Mattathias is a solid, loyal Jew, and he says, I will not. But another Jewish person next to him wanted the accolades, wanted the renown, and so he steps forward to make the sacrifice. Mattathias, so enraged, filled with the spirit of Phineas, if you remember that story from Numbers chapter 16, rushes forward and stabs this Jew, slaying him, and everyone rises up. They kill the envoys, and this begins something we call the Maccabean Revolt. This is the Jews rising up for the first time around this 168 AD in the, in the wake of this persecution and desecration by Antiochus, and they begin to do what we might think of as guerrilla warfare. They go from place to place, attacking, place to place, attacking, jumping in, jumping out, going back to the hills. In fact, they're so effective that they begin to grow a kind of an army because they just rise up around them. Soon, though, Mattathias is killed in battle, and his son, Judah, rises up to take his place. Not only does Mattathias die, but so does Antiochus Epiphanes die. So the emperor dies in battle. And so this whole region of Jerusalem begins to get a little bit, the the pressure is taken off. The wars cease a little bit. and, And the Greeks begin to go back to their seats of power. And so there's a smaller garrison now in Jerusalem. And Judah, who's called the Maccabee. Judah the Maccabee means literally Judah the Hammer which is like the most pre-gangster thing I've ever heard, right? So when you read in your, in your, if you have a Septuagint, and you open up and you read the Maccabees, you're reading the book of the hammer, right? That's what they're talking about. What was these people? They were the hammer. They came down and they said, it doesn't matter who you are or what you do, we are going to take you out. So I fixed the picture a little bit, but <laughs> the hammer, the hammer. The hammer is there taking out the people. And so what he, ha- what, he ha- what he does is he gets his army together and they go into Jerusalem. And they're actually able to liberate Jerusalem. They're able to kick the Greeks out because the garrison is small, because the emperor has left, because the wars have, and they've raised up an army. So they kick them out and they get Jerusalem back. They get the surrounding region back and they do something special. They go into the temple and they wipe away the blood and the idols, and they begin to make the sacrifices again, and they hold an eight-day festival of lights. Ever heard of that before? Might have also heard of that as Hanukkah. Such an important story, it carries through, right? It carries through. So we have the story of the Maccabees rising up and taking over this, this happens around the, the 160s. You know, the, the dates get a little fluid and, and, and crazy. But as this happens, you can imagine the sort of thing that happens. So cast your mind back to the Old Testament for just a second. And where we learned that Daniel left off in the shape of the Hebrew shape of the scriptures. Left off with Daniel and Chronicles and some of these things. Leaving with us the hope of a Messiah to come. A Messiah who would cast off Israel's enemies. Reinstitute proper worship save the people from the hands of their enemies, and bring back the days of David and Solomon. Now think with me for just a moment over what I just said to you. Do you hear the possible hope that the people might have had when they saw Judah take back the temple and take back the land? And then what we have after that is, of course, the the expansion of that family that expansion of that family 
And I don't have time to go through all of it, obviously, but I just want it because I've got to summarize 100 years. So we've got to move from 160 to 60 really quick. And I know that's way too much, so I'm hoping that all this does is spur some of your interest in this because this is incredibly important. But I think if I show you this genealogy real quick, in like 15 seconds, you can see the problem. All right, so go with me for a second. We got Mattathias. We already talked about him and his story. These are his sons, John, Simon, Maccabeus, Judas, Maccabeus. You know, is anybody? Eleazar, Jonathan, Maccabeus. Good names, right? You can hear the kind of the, the, the Hebrewness of this, the Jewishness of it. And here you've got Judah and Mattathias, but here we got a really word, weird word right here. Hierakanus. I don't know if you know anything about Greek, but you add a U.S. at the end of it. It's Greek, baby. Like, that's how it works. Hierakanus. So now we've moved one generation down. We're given Greek names. Did, did anybody just hear what the Greeks did? Did I not just talk about this? Right? One generation removed. We're honoring now our oppressors. Why might one do this? To curry favor? So here we move from Hierakanus. Now we're now the next generation... Alexandria, Aristobulus, Alexander, Janus. This is the name of a Greek god, Antagonist. This is the only Hebrew name. Does anybody remember what Absalom was and what he did? It's an interesting choice. Like, not that. And so as you go down, you can just kind of see this. Until we get to Hyrcanus the second and Aristobulus the second. And by now... There's a civil war between the two of them over who will rule Jerusalem or Israel. Hyrcanus does this, the classic Israelite and really just human blunder of reaching out to something other than God or Scripture. And he calls upon the Romans who had risen to power around this time. He calls the Romans and he says, hey, I really would like to be in charge. But Aristobulus, and if you read these stories, Aristobulus was hardcore, like Hardcore, like Game of Thrones, hardcore. In fact, let me just say this, just as an aside. If at any point of the times you think I'm going to fire up the soundtrack to Game of Thrones with all of this, let me tell you, it doesn't hold a candle. If the Bible talks about this in Daniel, but it does through so through metaphor and through symbols so much so it's like reading, like it's like reading Game of Thrones on drugs. Like your Bible is so cool, I do not understand literally why people do not read it. Like, this is the coolest retelling of history you've ever seen in your life. And that's what's going on here. You have this war that's happening now between them. So Pompey comes from way over here. If this is Israel, this is, you know, Italy. Comes and he takes over and he conquers Jerusalem. He tanks Jerusalem, burns it, and then he installs Hyrcanus as the person in charge. But from that moment now, in 63, they will never be free again. They will always be under Rome's thumb. Which means, follow with me for a second, that when Jesus is born, 60 years before this, they lost their freedom to the Romans. Like Jesus sat in Sunday school listening to people tell them stories about when the Maccabees ruled. And they read the stories of the Maccabees, of the hammer, and how the hammer took on the Greeks, and how the hammer rescued the people and how the hammer purified the temple and how now we're underneath Rome. 
We're persecuted again. We're paying 80% of taxes and it's not even staying within our community. It's leaving. They have taken back the temple. We have lost everything again. Can you imagine what it would have been like to listen to Jesus stand up in the temple or into the tabernacle or just in the street and say, the kingdom of God is at hand. Believe my good news. What would you have heard? Or, Or better yet, Quoting from Isaiah 61, the Spirit of the Lord, and here this is, should be actually all caps, not all lowercase. I actually botched that completely. The Spirit of the Lord is on me to proclaim the coming of God's rule to the poor, to proclaim freedom to the prisoners, and recovery of sight to the blind, which, remember, this is not a miracle of healing the eyes. What does the recovery of, recovery of sight of the blind mean in Isaiah? The removal of idolatry. Pure worship. That's what this is talking about. Not blindness. Not you can't see. That also stinks. But that's not what it's referring to. So he says, the good news of God's rule is coming to the poor. There's going to be freedom to the prisoners. We're going to restore proper worship. And the oppressed will go free. What would you have heard? What would you have heard if you listened to that? And then following this text in Luke 4, it says that they were, they wondered, they were amazed, they marveled, whatever adjective you want to use, at his gracious words. I always listened to that thought, well, it's gracious because, yeah, that's nice, this is all nice. But it never struck me how gracious it would be if Portage had been taken over 60 years ago and now we literally lived with garrisons and rape and murder and taxes and we were slaves, essentially, to a foreign oppressor. And how puzzling it would have been for the people to have heard Jesus say these things and then hear Jesus say, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall inherit the kingdom. Blessed are you when you forgive. Blessed are those who are persecuted. Blessed are the merciful. Blessed are the meek. You see the incongruity of the two. And yet the New Testament constantly describes Jesus in ways that are completely strange. Beyond just the idea of a Messiah, we're told many other things about Jesus. Not just this, but this. This is a paraphrased version of it which I don't normally use, but I really kind of liked how it got at the heart of the issue. This is from Colossians, and Colossians is trying to draw us into realizing that Jesus is the definitive king. He is the definitive prophet. He is the definitive voice of God that everything meets its answer. Everything meets its exposition. Everything meets its end in Jesus. If you want to know God, you know Jesus. If you don't know Jesus, you don't know God. That is constantly what is trying to be drawn forward. Why? Because of this. Everything of God gets expressed in Jesus. So you can see God clearly. So you can hear him clearly that you don't need a telescope a microscope or a horoscope to realize the fullness of christ and the emptiness of the universe without him and that when jesus christ shows up on the scene everyone is looking for the hammer but they got jesus that means something further It means that if Jesus did not show up to be the hammer, 
And if Jesus is the image of the invisible God in its fullness and its protection and perfection, it is this, that God didn't show up to be the hammer either. Let me say that again because some of you didn't hear me and many of you didn't believe me. God did not show up to be the hammer. He showed up to save and to seek and to call forward grace. And in one cosmic moment of the purest self-giving love where the Son of God lays down his life for his enemies, we see a door open of grace that had never been opened before. And if you are looking for the hammer, you will miss the cross. You will never understand the cross. In fact, let me go one, one step further. It, Jesus didn't show up to be the hammer. God didn't show up to be the hammer, which means if you are called to follow him, you are not called to be the hammer. And some of you think you are. And you are not. When God showed up, he showed up in a way we were not prepared for. He showed up in a way we couldn't understand. He showed up in a way that we still can't even possibly wrap our minds around, even in our most intimate and smallest moments. But if you could catch a glimpse of this, this one simple truth, that people saw the hammer and looked for God, and God showed up and said, you looked for the wrong thing. You looked for the wrong thing. And if you are looking for God today, let me tell you this. You should look for him where grace can be found. You should look for him where love can be found. You can, should look for him where the costly work of hearing and listening and being corrected. It struck me this morning how often the Bible tells us to be humble and how often it warns us to be wary of pride. Why does it tell us to be wary of pride and why does it tell us to be humble? It tells us to be humble because the humble person recognizes that they can be corrected and they don't resist it. But the proud person can never be corrected. The proud person already has an excuse, already has an argument. The proud person already knows all the things that are right to be said and done. The proud person doesn't get fixed. The proud person fixed. The proud person is the hammer. And so God calls us to be humble, walk humbly before God, recognize that we are all children. And so all of us, like children, need to be constantly corrected. I uh, corrected Emery the other day, and she just, it was funny, it was like the most like nine going on 16 year old thing I'd ever seen in my life. I corrected her, and she shrugged, like, I don't care. But then she did it anyway, which was all I asked for. <laughs> But I just, it, was, it, just, it was so used to her. She was so used to having somebody say to her, hey, listen, this isn't the way you should do it this way, that it didn't bother her. Her pride wasn't her. She's like, eh, she move on. You know, okay, I'll do it this way then. Right? If we are humble and we walk with God, if we recognize that Jesus came to teach us the way, then we can make ourselves teachable. But if we constantly think we're looking for the hammer so that we can follow the hammer, we will become the hammer. But if you follow the Christ who said, take up your cross and follow me, you become something altogether different. It matters. It matters what you think about God. 
And it matters what you think about Jesus. And it matters what you think he came to do because it will change who you are. When the prophet speaks, and Jesus quotes earlier, he says this, that the Messiah is coming to comfort all who mourn, to provide for those who grieve in Zion, to bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, the oil of joy instead of mourning, a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. They will be called, that is those who God is saving, will be called the oaks of righteousness, a planting for the Lord for the display of his splendor. Jesus made it possible through self-giving love. And he calls you into that grace through that same power and he calls you to it. To practice and embody it. So as we come to a conclusion this morning, I hope that you have seen to some extent how important this middle section is between Old Testament and New Testament matters very much and it's changed a lot of what we, and it helps us understand Jesus in a way that we've never understood him before, helps make sense of the prophets, helps make sense of a lot of things, but more importantly than all of this, I hope that you have heard that God has not changed, that those were not silent years where God abandoned his people and walked away, but those were years where God continued his plan to give to us the way of salvation, Jesus Christ. And if you don't know Jesus Christ today, you need to. You need to not because of hell, although that's something to take into account. You need to because God is full of grace. And the point of all of this is his desire to heal and to save. If you don't know him, I will be here, right here. You come and talk to me. We'll just talk. No pressure. If you don't want to walk in front of everyone, which is super awkward and weird, you're welcome to meet with the elders behind, uh, by the coffee place. They'd love to meet with you and pray with you, take you over to this room over here and to introduce you to Jesus. That is where we'll end this morning. If you stand, we'll sing this last song of praise for the splendor of his glory. Let's stand as well.